Welcome to episode 10 of the Weekend Write-In podcast. The Weekend Write-In is a long-running writing group hosted on Wattpad and open to all writers. Authors write weekly flash fiction stories of 500 words or less based on a one-word prompt. I'm Sovandrake and hey, who are you? I haven't seen you around here. I am the insidious Dr. Blank. Tremble before my might. Hang on. I know that voice. That's you, John. No, no, it isn't. I am Dr. Blank. You can't fool me. I'd know that voice anywhere. So take the mask off. Oh, all right. There. There you go. So what's this Dr. Blank about? Oh, Dr. Blank. He's my supervillain alter ego. Everybody should have one, you know. (laughs) Really? Well, in this episode, we'll discuss good guys and bad guys, and how our writers, Tom Walborn, Joyce Holt, and Lamplighter, develop the characters in their stories. And of course, we'll hear six flash fiction stories as read by the authors themselves. (laughs) Are these all going to be stories about evil, then? No, this podcast theme is good and evil. (laughs) But maybe I should get a supervillain alter ego, too. Yeah, it's not as easy as you might think. You know, there's... There's training, and there's lots of pitfalls to avoid, and it's just... That's hogwash. You overthink things too much. I'll I'll get myself a supervillain alter ego if I want one. Let's move on to our panel discussion, though. Welcome, everyone, to another Weekend Write-In discussion group. Today, we're going to focus on characters in our stories. Tom, do you want to introduce yourself first? I'm Tom Walborn. I live in a little town south of Atlanta, about 45 minutes, and uh, really writing only since I've been uh, in retirement. I retired in 2008, so that's left me a lot of time to play with my computers and my cameras and uh, story ideas. Hey, y'all. I'm Lamplighter1890, and I'm writing and speaking to you from the Lone Star State of Texas. Okay, I'm Joyce Holt uh, in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. I've been trying to write for practically all my life. Well, let's start off with a round of questions. When each of you are writing, are there characters that you find yourself drawn to? For example, do you like good characters more or enjoy evil characters more? Why don't we start with you, Lamplighter? No, I wouldn't say I'm drawn to a particular type of character. I think it's a little more fun writing evil characters or naughty characters because I'm neither of those things. So for me, that's more fictional. I think when I approach characters, I try to make them a little bit askew. So for me, it's finding the character and what can I do to tweak it? What puts it on its ear and makes it a little sideways? It makes it more interesting. And it de- it kind of depends. Uh Rarely do I get a story idea that's character-based. It's usually the story and the plot and what my idea is. And then I usually write the characters to fit that, which may seem a little backwards perhaps, but that's usually my method, particularly with the 500-word write-in. 500 words comes pretty darn quick. And you've really got to get on your game to get that character down. So usually um, I think about the story and the hook and squeeze the character to fit that. Joyce, tell us about your your characters and characters you like to write about. Um, I like to um, write uh, underdog characters. I like to do the ordinary 
person trying to do extraordinary things. That just appeals more to me. Um, so I'm not really into superheroes or celebrities or when I wanted to write about Yeda Eirik's daughter who appears in the old sagas, I decided to give her a sidekick and wrote from the sidekick's point of view. Anything else, Tom, that you want to say about characters and what, what characters do you enjoy writing about? Well, like Lamplighter was saying, it's, it's, I tend to develop my characters based on the story idea that I've uh, been working on. And I usually, when, once I get going in the story, I'm up to 800 or 1200 words and then I have to pare it back. So fine tuning the character is a, is a little difficult, but it, it's a good exercise. All right. Uh, but most of my characters, my, my bad characters or evil characters are just incidental to the story for the most part. The uh, people I enjoy writing about are more like myself. You know, they've got a, uh, a positive outlook and maybe a few little quirks. You mentioned about developing characters there, Tom. Do you have any standard process for developing characters in flash fiction, or is it just more on an ad hoc basis? It is mostly an ad hoc basis. I've, I've attempted to, I take, took an online video course on Writer's Digest will sell you anything. And I took a course on developing characters, but again, for the style of most of the style of writing that I do, it's very difficult to follow a character development guideline. Now I will say that when I like a story, a short story, a flash fiction story, and uh, decide to expand on it, like I did with Shorty's plan, uh, then I go into detail some more in, in my mind and try and picture what I'm going to do with these characters and uh, how I'm going to develop them. Joyce, your characters in the stories that you tend to do for the weekend writing, they're based on historical characters, aren't they? Uh, yes, they are. I find it really fascinating, all the, the uh, life tales and events that happen in history. How do you go about developing the characters in that? I, I know you've got I know you've got the history to build on, but sometimes history can be very dry. Uh, yes, my flash fiction lately has been uh, doing my ancestors in Norway, and actually all I have are names, dates, places, and relationships. Very few anecdotes about things going on. So, for instance, I'm building up to one particular family that later on we'll have a couple of suicides and an accidental death. So I'm just starting to paint the father of that family as uh, rather ill-tempered and hard-fisted. So, you know, it's just conjecture, but uh, we'll see where it goes. Lamplighter, you were talking about you start from the situation and try to mold your characters around the situation. What's that like? What sort of thought processes go on in your head whenever you're doing that? In terms of flash fiction in the 500-word group that we participate in, it's so short. I look at the premise, and unless the character immediately comes to mind with the premise, for example, I did that story on um, escape or exit, and I took the premise uh, or the point of view of the fire, if you guys remember reading that, the fire escape. Yes. That came out simultaneously. So my premise and character came out at the same time. I just kind of thought, oh, I can do this. When I'm writing from the premise backwards, though, I, I've got to find a puzzle piece of what will drive that idea forward. And so I'll plug in different ideas till I come up with a character that'll push that idea forward. In flash fiction, you don't have a lot of time, right? So it's 
you got to make your things each sentence count bearing that in mind what do you do to try and get the to try and build a character in in less than 500 words you don't have a lot of time to do backstory and some and lengthy conversation in flash fiction no. so what i try to do is use the setting to create a little bit of the character the setting will either set the character up in terms of giving you a feeling for that character when he's introduced or she's introduced or it will be so different that the character will really stand out juxtaposed to the setting so i i try to use the setting as part of the character and character development i'm very much into dialogue and short short dialogue to give you insight into the character so as i flush the story out i'll look for that dialogue to give you insight to the character as well as drive the story forward. Those are kind of two processes that I use as I'm flushing out the tale or flushing out the characters. John, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you get inspiration and develop your characters. I tend to have stock characters who I can drop into situations. Whenever I do my gaming, I often have to come up with characters on the fly. You know, for, for the players to interact with. So it's a case of always have a few handy, in my case, who are reasonably well-developed that, you know, they can withstand a bit of scrutiny from inquisitive players. If they can withstand that, then when it comes down to the reader, there's no issue that, there's no issues there at all. So do you find yourself kind of plopping some of your gaming characters into a handy storyline? Yes, yes, I do. It, it's a bit of a cheat, but we do what we can. It makes it easier if you, I, for me anyway, because it's a character that I'm familiar with, and it's a character that I can then take in. That I can then take in a direction that's appropriate. I know for myself, I think I base my characters off of people, off of real people that I've met. And, but then there, and sometimes it's sort of an amalgamation of lots of people. It's like little traits that you've seen, people that you know well or don't really know at all, um, and just sort of imagine. Um, what they might be like, but I, I think I think mine are are more, lo I'd say loosely reality based, very loosely reality based. Joyce, just out of interest, with your characters, do you find it difficult to differentiate between them, considering that you that you're covering such a wide scope in your historical stories? I noticed in um, two stories, one was science fiction, one was historical fantasy. Actually, these are in the novels. There was an old lady who was gruff and sharp, and I'm going, oh, I hope the readers don't notice and think she's only got a limited range of writing there. I do try to sometimes visualize people I know and how they can be somewhat similar but have other unique traits to differentiate them. Give us an example, please. Oh, some manners of speech just a little typical quirk that they might have like tossing their head or scowling knitting their brows so at one point i was feeling like okay i need to add more individuality to some of my characters and i couldn't think of anything so i sat down and just brainstormed all the different mannerisms or, or quirks that might be unique so i just made a, a word pool there it was more easy to uh, go and look down the list and say, okay, I think this character needs this. Tom, 
How about you with your characters in your in flash fiction? What do you do? What do you do to differentiate them, or do you or do you have stock characters that you that you're familiar with? No, I don't have stock characters per se. I will. I have uh, some characters that I've written about before that I'll keep in mind and maybe write a fresh story about them and build on that. But for the most part, to differentiate them or to get them to stand out, I just use some sort of little quirk. It might be a a, a name like Walter Tutos in the Shorties uh, series, or a um, uh, conversation and dialogue that they've been having. And I'll sparingly use adverbs to kind of show them as a shortcut. So they might say dismissively. It just gives you a little bit more flavor about, or a, a picture, a mental picture about that type of person the character is. Sometimes you can do a lot with very few words and very few, um, li- very little dialogue, very little action. You can actually build a lot of character very quickly. Does anybody have any last thoughts, any last words to say about creating characters for flash fiction? Well, in fiction in general, uh, a rule of thumb that I really like is the villain is the hero of his own story. So uh, it really helps to bring a villain to life, to uh, give him conviction, give him or her conviction that uh, he or she is on the right course and maybe the hero is an obstacle in his way. A great tip. I'm writing it down. Lamplighter, any final thoughts on characters in flash fiction that you wish to share with us? Hmm. I find that um, when I'm character writing or story writing, the character tends to come to life in the editing. So I write and write and write and write and write and write and end up with my thousand words or whatever. But it's the editing, the character tends to take form and pick up specific characteristics when I'm chopping it down and whittling it away um, and making those really hard choices you have to make in editing. So for me, the editing is, is when a character, I really make those t- some of those tough decisions on where they're going and what they're about. I don't worry about it necessarily initially. I'm trying to fit the plot. So, so it all comes down to the fine tuning. <laughs> yeah, I like, I like that too. That's, that's also a great process tip. Thank you guys for um, all joining by Zoom. John, does it seem like a good time to listen to your story and then see if people have some comments on the characters? The Answer by John Nedwell The detective leaned across the interview room table and looked Nolan in the eyes. And you expect us to believe that Zane killed himself? Just like that? He slammed his hand down on the table. Nolan just shrugged. It's what i seen, and i got people who'll say the same. We've spoken to over a dozen of your people, the detective snarled. And you know what? They say Zane killed himself as well. But I want to hear it from you, Nolan. Straight from your mouth. All right. Nolan leaned back and put his hands behind his head. We was in the room above the dance floor. You know, the party room with the windows. Anyway, Zane was there, drink in one hand, girl in another. Then this guy comes in. The guy in the coat? Our mysterious assassin? the detective asked. Yeah, we didn't know how he got in. The boys on the door couldn't tell us, but he was there. He looked around like he owned the place, then just walked up to where Zane was sitting. And you didn't stop him? The detective sounded incredulous. Hey, I thought he'd been passed by the boys at the door. Besides, it looked like he had business with Zane. Legit business. Or somebody else did. The detective scribbled something on the file in front of him. Go on. 
So, like I said, this guy just sits down next to Zane, and then they start talking about something. Nolan raised a hand to stop the detective's question. No, I don't know what they was talking about, and I don't want to know. It ain't healthy to know too much about Zane's dealings. Anyway, the next thing that happens is this guy puts a gun down on the table in front of Zane. Zane just looked at that gun, then turned to the guy like he was asking for something. But the guy just leans over and whispers something in Zane's ear. Then he gets up and leaves. Didn't you see where he went? I mean, you, somebody, must have wanted to speak to this man, even if it was just to find out what he said to Zane. Nolan laughed. It was a nervous laugh. Brittle and harsh. Sure. But before we could, Zane put that gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. Bang! Dead. You'll understand if we was a little preoccupied after that. The detective closed the file and sat back upright. He was silent for a moment, his forehead furrowed in thought. Then... And you've no idea at all what this mysterious assassin said to make Zane shoot himself? Hell no, Nolan said, and I don't want to never find out the answer to that one. Any comments on the story or characters particularly? Well, it had that Philip Marlowe hard-boiled detective fiction feel to it. Um, and the characters had that tough-talking, short-talking feel. For me, it was good to capture that whole kind of genre in a short story like that. I, I felt like I had a really good sense of these deliciously evil characters in, in this, this short piece. I mean, there seems like everybody was involved with shady dealings. I like the way John, uh, and I've often said this about him, he can develop using so few words. He can put you right at the scene sometimes. If you're feeling what they're feeling and you're, you're seeing what they're seeing. In this case, I think part of it was the dialogue. You know, the way they're, the way they're talking kind of gives you a sense of what, what their station in life is, what their class is. But the, my, I would question John, is the, when the assassin left, is he really the assassin since he just left the gun and he didn't really kill anybody? That's the, that's the entire question that needs the answer. <laughs> and that, that kind of sums up your stories. You always leave us asking, wanting more and asking questions and creative, creating things with our imagination. <laughs> Joyce, do you have any, any thoughts? I like the way John just really brings the characters to life through the dialogue that um, so much of their character shows in the way they say and the word choice. Well, considering that the story is essentially all told in dialogue, I didn't have much choice, let's be honest. Well, and, and you still felt like you were in the room where it happened, the, bar, the upstairs bar room, even though the story was just the recounting of another story that already happened. And yet you sort of felt the tension of the room where, where Nolan was sitting. Thank you to Joyce Holt. Thank you to Tom Wellborn. And last but not least, thank you very much to Lamplighter 1890. Miser Evan by Joyce Holt to the prompt bargain. Hold on a moment, I'm coming. Ah, good evening. Are you seeking directions, my good sir? No, I've come to see you, Evan Bach. You know my name. Well, you have the advantage on me, but I'm always glad to make a new acquaintance. Come in, have a seat here by the fire. Would you like a drink? No, I shan't be long. I have several calls to make in this neighborhood. 
You know the people hereabouts, then? Indeed, I do. How odd. I'd swear I've never seen you before. You haven't. Oh, well then, who are you, if I may be so bold? Death. Ah, I would have expected a rather a different appearance. Cloak and scythe, perhaps, like this? Oh, a farmer's tweets will do instead, if you please. No matter. I am in a hurry, and you must come with me. Isn't it a bit soon? I'm only sixty and able to do a good many things more before I'm eighty. That may be, but I have set my mind on having a man of your age tonight. There's Billy James down in Newton. He's just gone sixty. And now I do come to think of it, Billy'll be glad to go. He's had rheumatics since he was forty. No, I want a healthy man. Well, to be sure, I can tell you of a fellow sound in wind and limb. Just the thing for you, Dewey Mower of Pyle. He can walk forty miles without feeling tired. Come now, isn't that likely to suit? No, uh, there are plenty riper than me down this way. There's Ned of Murther Mower and Jack O'Connolly and old Uncle Dick of Newton and all of them over eighty. Too old for me just now. Supposing I was to give you all my savings, a big lump to nearly three thousand pounds. Money is of no use to me. But for once I will break my rule if you are prepared to make a bargain with me. Dear Annual, I will do anything you like. You must take a new path in life, Miser Evan. My terms are these. You must support your old Aunt Molly, who's barely surviving on a pittance from the parish. You must give a new fishing boat to your nephew, who is soon to be married. And you must give more to the poor box and the collections in the parish church. To be sure, yes indeed, all you say. If you fail in these things, I shall come for you. Uh, otherwise I shall live forever? Nay, but you shall see your ninety-ninth year. Hold on a moment, I'm coming. Oh, it's you. Good evening, Evanbach. Your time has come. Uh, but I'm only ninety-three. I have six more years. You haven't kept your part of the bargain. I did for a good long while. I took in Aunt Molly, but she's dead now. Surely you know that. And my nephew has a fortune of his own. He hasn't needed help from me for five and ten years now. What about the poor box and the collections plate? Oh, well, um, you see, once I turned ninety, it seemed rather frivolous. Come, Miser Evan. He who values hoarded wealth more than life loses both. A folktale from Glamorgan, Wales, popular in the early 1800s. Hi, I'm Tom Walborn. My story this month was originally written in August of 2018 for the prompt Liar. 
At the time, I called it Crooked Mick meets Paul Bunyan. Now, Crooked Mick was the Australian equivalent of Paul Bunyan, and I kind of imagined what would happen if they got together. I've rewritten it a little bit, and the new title for this edition is Tell Us a Story. I hope you enjoy it. Tell us a story, Uncle Mick. My mom's brother Mick was visiting us from Australia. We lived in a small town in upstate New York. Yes, please do, my siblings echoed. We were curled up on the daybed on the summer porch, trying to find a cool place to sleep. Mom had vetoed our suggestion that we sleep in the hayloft. Now don't go filling their heads with your tall tales all night, Mick, Mama told him. They have a busy day tomorrow. She kissed us all and went back downstairs to join the other grown-ups. A round of laughter floated up in the still night. Lights from the kitchen spilled out into the backyard and pushed out into the darkness. What do you want to hear, Uncle Mick asked, his voice deep and mellow with a slight accent that felt deliciously foreign to us. There's the time I wrestled that dust devil in the outback. No, we all agreed. How's about the time I... Tell us about the time you met Paul Bunyan, my younger brother Bobby said. Oh, said Uncle Mick. Then, hmm. <clears throat> he cleared his throat and began the tale. I noticed his voice now sounded more like an American cowboy. I got me this letter in the mail from a fancy New York lawyer saying they wanted to bring me to America for a contest. Of course, they didn't tell me that I'd be contesting again Paul Bunyan. I might have just said, no thanks. But I came. Y'all might not know this, but in them days, the middle of the United States was covered with a great forest. The lawyers said they needed that land cleared for people to put down farms and grow crops. That sounded like a reasonable request to me at the time. The idea was Paul Bunyan would start in North Dakota, and I would start in Texas, and we would work towards Nebraska, clearing the woods from the flatlands. The one that got there first would win $100. Now, I didn't know nothing about logging. My particular charm is in sheep shearing. So I decided to watch old Paul for a week or two, see how this business was run. First thing I noticed is, you gotta have an ax. They didn't tell me that. So I ordered me one from the big and tall shop at Sears and Roebuck, and while I waited for it to come, I sat to observing the legend himself. I could tell he was happy in what he did. He was grinning like a weasel in a henhouse. And he would sing while he worked. Sounded like a donkey with a bad cold, but who am I to judge? I'd find myself a good seat in the Black Hills where I could observe Paul without being in the way. While I was waiting on my axe, I got to carving away on a rock next to me. When I got up to leave and the locals could see what I'd been doing, they were so appreciative they called that rock Mount Rushmore. After observing old Paul in North Dakota, I figured I had a handle on this logging business, so I hired myself on down to Texas and commenced to clear some trees. I got through Texas pretty quick, but got slowed down a mite in Oklahoma. They was always having these little windstorms. One day, when the sky cleared, I looked up over the trees and I could see a big flurry of leaves and branches hovering over South Dakota. I figured old Paul was getting close. So the next windstorm that came along, I got my arms around it and swung it around so the pointy end was focused on the trees. They tell me later they call those winds tornadoes, but I reckoned. I just invented the first vacuum cleaner. Well, kids, 
I sucked my way through Oklahoma and Kansas in good order, and then the lawyers came out and shut me down. They told me I wasn't stacking the logs the way they wanted them. I had rigged my knife to the top of the twister and was cutting them logs into boards and stacking them for the farmhouses. Them lawyers said they didn't need boards. They needed timbers for the railroad beds and to burn in their engines. Well, I looked into it and I found out they'd also been buying the land as soon as we cleared it and had planned to sell it to the farmers, not give it away. Them lawyers lied to us. They were so crooked, I reckon they could swallow their nails and spit out corkscrews. Didn't seem right to me, so I got together with old Paul and came up with a plan. We worked it so we met exactly in the middle of Nebraska at the same time. Those lawyers had to declare the contest a tie and pay us each $100. Then at the ceremony, Paul announced that by the authority of the Homestead Act, he and I were claiming all the land we cleared. From the Canada border down to Texas, it was all ours according to law. And we were giving it back to the American people to farm and live on. No lawyers were allowed. So that is how I met Paul Bunyan and created the Great Plains. Would you all like to hear how I met Pecos Bill? Mick looked at the sleeping children and said softly, Well, maybe another time. My name is David Sini, and this story is based off the prompt, Wall. Two old wizards set out on a trek to reach the fabled city of Gardalon, which was rumored to hold new wonders of magic. The journey was long and seemed even longer still as the road became increasingly bumpy and overgrown. Neither wizard paid it much mind though as they were still engrossed over the new magical possibilities they could learn. Little did they know the main road in the Gardalon had been rebuilt to travel further east and they had strayed onto the old road by accident. That old road ended in a clearing where they were stopped by a high stone wall. It spread out in either direction as far as the wizards could see. They both stared at the unexpected delay before Mortimer spoke up. This section looks newer than the rest. Just as sturdy though, but with less moss covering it. He turned to Francis and asked, Do you think someone knew we were coming and tried to impede our progress? Francis tapped on the warm stone and bit his lip in thought. Very well could be. It's not a magical construct, so someone went to a lot of trouble in building this. Have we unwittingly made enemies with someone? Mortimer asked, confused, since they were both largely reclusive. Francis shrugged. Let's break through and ask them ourselves when we find them. He then held up a hand where a tiny ball of fire came into existence. It grew in size the longer the wizard focused on it until the ball of fire was half the size of a man. He winked at his old friend before launching the ball of fire at the wall. A loud thud echoed through the woods when the fireball made contact, but nothing happened. As the smoke cleared, only a large round coating of soot could be seen. Mortimer came up with an idea. Let's hit the wall with both fire and ice. It will likely crumble at our feet. Both wizards squared off and alternated attacks from Francis' fireball and Mortimer's ice storm. Soon they became exhausted and gave up. The wall still stood, hardly showing a mark after their combined efforts. I know, Francis exclaimed. Check the spellbook. Perhaps there are some more useful spells in there. For hours, the two wizards took turns reading from their book and casting destructive spells against the formidable wall. Just out of sight, 
unbeknownst to the wizards, five Gardalon city guards marveled at the spectacle in silence. Captain, do you want to tell them there's an entrance into town a few hours walk from here? They don't seem like evil wizards. It just looks like they took the wrong road to town, one of the soldiers finally asked. We'll wait a bit longer, the captain answered. Even good wizards can be deadly and are easier to deal with when they are recuperating their strength. When that time comes, we can find out why they insist on attacking our city walls. Be Prepared by Jenny Clark Written for the Weekend Writing Prompt Priority We raced from one shop to the next never winning, my blood pressure rising with every failure. I can't believe we can't find one, I shouted as we raced past other shoppers, pushing and elbowing our way up the escalators to the small cook shop on the top floor. It was expensive, but our last hope. Babes, my husband panted and reached for my arm. Stop for me. We can order one online and it'll arrive tomorrow if we go home and do it now. He clutched his chest and struggled to breathe. Remember the cats and dogs? I asked and pulled away from him. He was horribly sweaty. We weren't prepared for them, were we? How could I not remember, he said, and held up his hand with its missing finger and crisscross of scars. I stopped and glared at him. No one to blame but yourself. You were so sure it was all a joke. And I paid for my mistake. He managed a raspy breath and a little colour returned to his pasty white cheeks. But this is different. Yes, it is different. And we will be ready despite me having to wait for you to finish work. This racing round could have been avoided if you'd watched the news or answered your phone. I tugged his arm and we walked quickly through the crowds. You know I'm not allowed to keep my phone on at work, he panted. Far too uncomfortable. He staggered into a waste bin and held it tight, trying to catch his breath. I reached across and caught it for him. You are so unfit. You better wait for me, or I'll be a widow before the morning. I pushed him onto a nearby metal bench, dumped his breath into his hands and flew up the next flight of stairs. It might seem childish, but I crossed my fingers as I refolded my wings and entered the cookshop. I searched the shelves but couldn't see a juicer. Why didn't we already have one? I had every other kitchen gadget. My heart thumped but I ignored it. No doubt I'd have some bruises later, but buying a juicer was a priority. An out-of-stock sign caught my eye. Luckily, my thick mascara deflected it or it would have been more serious than a scratch on my eyelid. I wiped away the blood and turned to see a woman holding the last juicer. I grabbed sales assistant's arm and used it to knock a tower of saucepans to the floor. The noise as they clattered and bounced was thunderously loud. In the ensuing storm, I grabbed the box from the woman's hands, hurried to the pay here sign, waved my bank card and ran out. I rushed back to my husband. I got one, I grinned and tugged him off the bench. He 
groaned. Why the hurry now? Have you not been listening? I shook my head and spoke slowly and clearly. Orange weather warning. The Deal by Sovon Drake Written to the prompt agreement The receptionist beckoned. Daniel Morgan stood and strode confidently across the marble floor to the imposing ornate double doors which opened as he approached. He and his team of lawyers had bartered for weeks over the terms, but being a wolfish Wall Street type, Daniel smirked as he entered the CEO's office to sign the contract. He had, of course, finessed hundreds of deals in his career, and the jealous types probably assumed he already had a contract with Mr. Furr. In fact, he couldn't believe they hadn't crossed paths earlier, let alone become business associates. All that would change after today, and Daniel would take the helm as the richest man in the world. The large chair behind a bare oak desk faced away from him towards the stunning 180-degree view of Central Park. I'm glad we came to an agreement, Daniel, purred a sultry voice. Daniel felt his throat constrict. The CEO of the company slowly turned to face him. Daniel felt weak in the knees. Jet black ringlets framed smooth, pale skin and full red ruby lips. Her unparalleled beauty made Daniel forget the task at hand. Ma, ma, Miss Fur, he stammered. You assumed I was a man. She smiled and rose elegantly from her chair. Her tightly tailored suit left little to the imagination. He found himself staring at her shapely legs and black stilettos. She glided over to Daniel and offered him her hand. He shook her small, soft, cool fingers, desperately wanting to flash her his most charming, and he could be charming, of smiles. But instead, a strangle noise emanated from his mouth like a little schoolboy. Please, call me Lucy. Her smile was to die for. A vision of Lucy pulling him against her, toppling over onto the desk and ripping off each other's clothes flashed across his mind. Such carnal images and realities were hardly unusual for Daniel, but this one made it hard for him to stay focused. There's just one aspect of the contract I've changed before we sign. Daniel barely heard her. He pictured her wearing a black corset while chaining him to the wall of a dungeon. The sound of a crack of a whip brought him back to reality. I've changed lifetime to indefinitely on page 18, line 7. She placed a silver pen into his hand. She stood so close to him he felt the heat emanating off her body. He began to perspire profusely. Would you care to go out for a drink with me? asked Daniel, his voice near a whisper. His hand shook as he signed the contract, almost involuntarily. She took the contract and pressed a business card into his hand. You might be the only man ballsy enough to ask out the devil while signing his soul away. Her eyes sparkled like diamonds. She turned abruptly and returned to her desk. The click of her high heels echoed unnaturally. No, Mr. Morgan, I won't have a drink with you this evening. I'm a busy woman and our business here is done. Perhaps I'll see you again, asked Daniel hopefully. Most certainly, replied Lucy, and then she vanished in a puff of black smoke. Daniel looked down at the card in his hand. Lucy Fur, CEO, Hell and Brimstone Incorporated. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Weekend Write-In Podcast. For more episodes and links to more work by these authors, visit our website at www.weekendwritein.wordpress.com. The Weekend Write-In Podcast is co-hosted, produced, and edited by John Nedwell and Sovon Drake. The following tracks from festlionstudios.com were used in the following stories. Wizards, A Night to Romance, Be Prepared, The Last Time, the Deal, Blood Money, The Answer, Scary Atmosphere. Music from the Free Music Archive was used for the following stories, Miser Evan, Earthwork by Hinterheim, and Tell Me a Story, Brian by Lobo Loco. The following sound effects come from freesound.org, Monster Chuckle by Dominaris, Shop Open Door Close by Shawl555, Wine Glass Cheers, by Mega Extreme and book dropping by deleted user 32800201. Hello, I'm here to pick up my supervillain certificate. Oh, hello, Servan. Yeah, um, I've been assigned to review your application, and um, yeah, I'm afraid there's some problems with it. Problems? Yeah. You see, the villain agency got tired of certifying unsuccessful villains who die monologuing or screw up by leaving their enemies in incredibly slow death traps. It's not doing much for the community. So we established some regulations that you'll need to comply with before getting your certificate. There's regulations that villains have to follow? Oh, everybody has to follow regulations these days. You know, it's all about international standards, after all. And I'm afraid that... um, there's some areas where you just don't measure up. You mean my menacing cackle, my cockamamie plan to take over the world, and my black cape aren't enough? Well, while they're good and stylish, um, we need a bit more. Um, hang on. Yeah, here's a list of the items that aren't up to code. For example, let's see. Um, yeah, the ventilation ducts in your castle? They're large enough for the hero to escape through. Uh, You can see how that'll be a problem later on. Well, I suppose I have seen a lot of people escape through ventilation ducts in the movies. Yeah, and speaking of that, um, you really need to hire a team of board-certified architects to examine your castle. They'll go over it, survey it, inform you of any secret passages and abandoned tunnels that you might not know about. I, you know, it's only the responsible thing to do. Yeah, I, I guess that's probably a good idea. I could pony up for some architects since they're a bit short of work these days. Yeah, well, they're not going to be the only ones who are going to be getting employment. Um, let's see, what else is it? Your doomsday device. Yeah, that's not up to code and it's not properly grounded. Somebody could get hurt. And then, oh, ooh, that's nasty. Oh, yeah. You know those fats of hazardous chemicals you've got in the basement? Every villain needs hazardous chemicals. Yes, but you've got to keep them covered when they're not in use. And you've constructed walkways above them as well. I mean, that, that's just asking for it. And, ooh, oh, no, no, no. This is a rookie mistake. You know the door mechanisms in your cell area? Yeah. Right. Apparently, whoever fitted them, yeah, if you blast the control panel on the outside, it opens the door. I mean, you may as well just text the heroes and send them a message to come around for tea it's oh it needs fixing oh, forget it i'd like to retract my application for being a super villain 
What? Really? <laughs> hey, John. Yeah? Are you going to get rid of the mask? Well, I quite like the look, but I have to admit, it's a bit difficult to eat through and talk through and drink through and... Yeah. Well, here you go. Why don't you toss the mask and keep the suit? Here, have a drink. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>